We are continuing our walk through Paul's letter uh, to the church in ancient Corinth. And maybe it goes without saying, but ancient Corinth is not modern Columbus. But it might surprise you to know that there are some amazing, very interesting, and also very important overlaps between our cultural moment and the ancient city of Corinth. I'll just give you a few. Like Columbus, Corinth was ethnically diverse. And so at the local tavern, I'll just put up a picture of what they think ancient Corinth looked like in Paul's day. If you were were sitting in a tavern, which they had, uh, you would meet Egyptians and Ethiopians. You would meet Greeks and Romans. You would meet Parthians, which is Iran to us. And Syrians, you would meet Jewish men and women and Asian men and women. And everywhere you walked along these streets, you would hear all kinds of different languages being spoken and accents being spoken. And so like Columbus, Corinth was diverse that way. Like Columbus, Corinth was religiously diverse. With all these nationalities represented, uh, it, it makes sense that there would be all kinds of religious diversity as well. And so walk down that main street... The Lacayon Way, on into the main city center there, you would pass all kinds of temples to different Greco-Roman deities. You would pass a Jewish synagogue as well. You would see meat hanging in that main sort of area right there. You see meat hanging off the archways. Why? Because of all the animals that were sacrificed for these temples. And they would be selling that meat for you to take home and eat. That plays out a little bit later in 1 Corinthians. The church in Corinth didn't meet in a church building with a steeple and with pews. The church in Corinth met in a house. In fact, if it helps you visualize, as Paul writes to this church, picture a house with about 60 folks. So it's a small, tight-knit community. Like Columbus, Corinth was economically diverse. And so Corinth had a population of about 5,000 in Paul's day, 3,000 of which were wealthy and really at the top. They they would be the celebrities of that culture. So the other 47,000 in this city were trying to climb this ladder. In fact, Corinth was well known as a place for social mobility, going up the ladder. Corinth was where slaves across the Roman Empire were traded, bought, sold, and exchanged. It's where a lot of freed, newly freed slaves sought work in the building trade. And there was two shores, and so the dockyard trade was really popular. Walking down the street in Corinth, you would see gladiators. And those were the celebrities, by the way. You would see gladiators walking maybe to the gym for training. There was a gladiator training gym somewhere in that picture. I don't know where. I tried to search it out. You would see orphans begging on the streets. So these Christians, these new followers of Messiah, these new followers of Jesus, struggled with so many of the same things we struggle because of the same factors. And so Paul writes this letter to encourage them in their walk with Jesus. And what we're doing as a church is we're asking that God would use these words as powerfully to us as they were to this original audience. 
Last week we started into chapter 2. We're going to finish the chapter 2 this morning. And so if you would read along, follow along with me as I read. Uh, this is God's Word. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom. Although it is not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this. And by rulers of this age, just so you're like, what does that mean? It's anybody that would have power over this fledgling community, be it political or spiritual. Any entity that would have power over this community. Paul says, we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages of our glory. Verse 8, none of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, and he quotes Old Testament, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit. God, the Holy Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person, which is in him. So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, who proceeds from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. This is God's word. Let's just pray before we dig in to see what he has for us this morning. Lord, would the words of my mouth and with the meditation of all of our hearts together be pleasing and acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. As we learn about your work, Holy Spirit, would you indeed work among us? And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So whenever a a neighbor discovers that I'm a pastor... They either change the subject immediately, which is more common, or if there's someone interested, they would say often or always really, that's awesome. I myself am trying to be spiritual. What they never say, I've noticed this over the years, is that's awesome. I myself am trying to be more religious. It's always, I'm trying to be more spiritual. I'm working on my spirituality. I'm exploring spirituality. It's never, I I, I want to become a more religious human being. I'm glad you're a pastor because you might be an interesting resource in my life for my religious pilgrimage. No, it's always spirituality. I mean, we've heard it said, and perhaps we've said it before. I am not religious, I'm spiritual. I'm spiritual, but not religious. 
Amen. Have you heard that before or said that before? Uh, this is so popular that it has its own acronym in social sciences, okay? Uh, SBNR, spiritual but not religious. That, that phrase is too long and cumbersome for scholars, I guess. So they just put SBNR. And they do all kinds of studies on this because studies are showing that this is indeed the fastest growing, one of the fastest growing faith communities in America. This. SBNR. Of course, they wouldn't say that's a faith community, but that, but the social scientists who study this kind of thing are saying so. Uh, one recent Pew Research poll concluded that it's it, one in five Americans would identify as SBNR. One popular author and podcaster, uh, Sam Harris, has an entire guidebook dedicated to this growing faith community called Waking Up, a guide to spirituality without religion. SBNR has many forms. I learned this this week. There's dissenters. They hate organized religion. There's casuals who seek spiritual practices for their own well-being if it serves them. There's explorers who are like spiritual tourists who just love exploring different and new things. There's seekers who are looking desperately for a place to call home. They even think about returning to where they were brought up, whatever faith tradition they were brought up in. And then there's spiritual immigrants, those who are looking for something new to commit completely to. They are ready to make a home of some place. And I think all of us, even as committed members of a church, probably resonate with these titles. We feel a little bit homeless. And we maybe would characterize our relationship to God as a spiritual relationship to God. And at the very least, we know people who are. Spirituality, in other words, is trending. I've had two recent conversations uh, with friends who want to focus on their spirituality this year. And that's a beautiful thing. I'm so glad for that. But the question for me is this. Is there such a thing as true spirituality? I mean, we can all have our personal spiritualities, but can they all be true? Can they all be beautiful? Can they all be good? I find it interesting. There's one psychologist who even calls the modern spiritual person one of the most dangerous narcissists you'll ever meet, suggesting that this spiritual quest kind of in our cultural moment can actually make us self-absorbed and selfish and narcissistic and, yes, even dangerous. Spirituality is trending, but is that a good thing? And is there such a thing as true spirituality? This is where 1 Corinthians, I think, has some exciting overlap with our culture. Because in that day, spirituality was a hashtag word. Spirituality was a very important word in that culture. And like today, they were, they were really obsessed with growing in their spirituality. 
and becoming more and more spiritual. They long to be spiritual. And Paul, because he's a missionary, notices this as he enters into this Greco, this Roman colony in Greece. And he picks up this word spiritual and he uses it a lot, a lot, a lot in this letter. In fact, chapters 12 through 14, you're going to see this word all the time. But what Paul does is he doesn't simply take the word spiritual as it's used in Corinth. He actually redefines it according to truth. According to God's story. According to what God has revealed. He redefines and subverts this idea and this quest for spirituality. And so what is true spirituality for the follower of Jesus? 1 Corinthians gives us the answer. In the passage you just heard me read aloud, I think we get an amazing mini-theology of true spirituality. What is true spirituality? Well, the most important thing for us to see from this text this morning is that spirituality means nothing apart from the true God. We want to define spirituality in terms of our sense of peace or we want to define spirituality in terms of nature or something else that really gives us a sense of humility or a sense of smallness. We want to define spirituality in terms of our practices. But for Paul, true spirituality, a truly spiritual person, is always anchored to or in relationship to the true God, who is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Paul says that true spirituality is making contact or relationship with God, and in particular, God the Holy Spirit. See what Paul is doing? Paul is saying the spiritual person has the Holy Spirit. That's why they're spiritual. And that has all kinds of implications for us this morning. Why is this that Paul connects spirituality with God the Holy Spirit? Well, I see five reasons in the text you just heard aloud. And we're just going to rifle through them. And we're going to ask as a community what that means for you and your spirituality. So what we see first is this. We see that the Holy Spirit reveals the wisdom of God. So Paul's entire argument in verses 6 through 10, if you take a look again is that true wisdom only comes through the Spirit. So he says, among the mature, which was another catchword in that day, people wanted to be mature in Corinth, or we would call it, maybe we would say, whole. We want to be whole. Or um, maybe we would say, we want to be well. Wellness is a real catchword in our context. Well, the way that they described that was maturity. The Greek word teleos means end or complete. They wanted to be complete. They wanted to be fully Mature, And Paul says, okay, you want maturity, then I will impart to you wisdom. Although it's not the wisdom that you're used to of this age or the wisdom that your rulers have or purport to have who are doomed to pass away. He says instead, verse 17, we impart a secret and a hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before creation for your glory, for your flourishing. God had something in mind. And it has to do with Jesus and his crucifixion and his resurrection. 
And he says in verse 8, none of the rulers of the sage understood this. Well, if they did, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord who created them. If they were completely blind to the reality of Jesus and who he was, Paul says. And he goes, of course, because as we read in the Old Testament, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. In other words, Paul is saying, you can't make this stuff up. God's story is so magnificent, you can't make it up. And in fact, you're going to miss it. You're going to miss the Lord of glory unless he himself reveals it to you. How does that happen? Well, he says in verse 10, these things God has revealed to us, praise God, through the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit, God, the Holy Spirit reveals the wisdom of God's salvation. That's the first thing Paul says in this mini theology. The second thing he says is that the Holy Spirit explores the depths of God. Verse 10. Verse 10 says, for the spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. I love that phrase, the depths of God. Have you ever been walking in the ocean and then suddenly the you hit the shelf and the ground just drops underneath you? And it's kind of terrifying because you start thinking about like that, you know, you start thinking about the movies you watched as a kid or something. And you're like, man, that goes all the way down. And there's a megalodon down there. You know what I mean? Like that's that's just where I go. And you kind of just your heart beats a little bit faster. I often get this when I'm swimming in open water. I, I just I, I can almost I almost stop breathing. It's too overwhelming because I'm like, this the depths that are below me. Well, that is on an infinite order with God. The depths of God. Only God, only God the Holy Spirit has access to those depths. The Holy Spirit comprehends the thoughts of God. This is the third point that Paul gives us in verse 11. He says that no one comprehends or understands the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Just like you don't fully know me because you don't have or know my thoughts or really have access to them. Paul is making an analogy, like for like. In the same way, God the Holy Spirit has access and comprehends and understands the thoughts of God. There's a, there's a, a oneness here that Paul is hinting at. Which is where we get the mystery of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Three persons, one God. Fourth thing he tells us is in verse 12, that the Holy Spirit is from God. This might be easy to miss. It's just one little word, from God. But that word from God is so important. What Paul is saying is that the Holy Spirit proceeds from God. God does not sit back and wait for us to search for him. No, those who are spiritual receive the spirit who is from God. Only God can reveal God and he does by the Holy Spirit. And number five, the Holy Spirit, Paul says, opens our eyes to the things of God. Verse 13 tells us that those who are spiritual are taught by the Holy Spirit. Interpreting the Spirit is interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual, implying that the church are spiritual. There's that word, that catchword, spiritual. Yes, 
hope. We are spiritual. Yes, spirituality is important, but do you see it's anchored to the Holy Spirit? That's why we're spiritual. We are not animated by mere sort of neurons firing. We are animated by the Holy Spirit of God. And this is in contrast to the natural person, as it says in verse 14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for, for these things are folly to, to him or her, and, and they are not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And so Paul is arguing that if you don't have the Holy Spirit, then you simply, um, you simply are, are natural. You're, you're a mere human. Humans are made in the image of God with all kinds of dignity. You don't, you don't give somebody dignity, no matter who they are. You acknowledge their dignity, okay? But what Paul is saying here is that without the Holy Spirit, you are unable to discern or even understand or appreciate or sense the beauty of the things of God. You have no spiritual taste buds for the banquet that he lays before us. It reminds me, in college, I backpacked across Western Europe, but about three weeks in... I got mononucleosis and a really nasty case of strep so that my uh, throat was practically closed, right? It was terrible. And what made it even worse was not the pain and sort of being exhausted all the time, uh, was because I was being exposed to some amazing food and drink. But I couldn't taste any of it. In fact, and Josie and I were dating at the time, and I'm sure this scandalized her. I basically had a diet of McDonald's ice cream while backpacking Europe. Isn't that ridiculous? McDonald's ice cream, which is better over there, by the way. I don't know what they do differently. You're asking, how do you know that if you couldn't taste? It was cold on my throat. That's why it was better. That is the condition that Paul describes as the natural person. The natural person, even at their absolute best and profound, has no spiritual taste buds. They cannot understand the things of God, even if they wanted to. In order uh, to be spiritual, truly spiritual, as God defines the word, you must receive the Holy Spirit. And then when you do, God the Spirit will make you suddenly taste the things of God. I used to go to art museums with Josie when we were dating and early in our marriage to try and impress her. And then we went to St. Louis for seminary, um, and suddenly a light bulb went off. I used to go to a museum with her. It was art for Josie's sake. And then suddenly I'm like, wow, visual art is amazing. And I started to go for art for art's sake. It was a complete change. This is what happens when we receive the Holy Spirit. We're sensitized to His beauty. To the realities of the gospel. We're sensitized to them. I grew up hearing the words, the literal words of the gospel every single week. And yet it took some miracle when I was a teenager. When those same exact words threw me to the floor in astonishment. 
What happened? What happened? I was sensitized to the realities of my sin and God's grace for the very first time. And that's what the Holy Spirit loves to do. One scholar writes this, the basic difference that Paul is describing is between people in whom God's Spirit has come to dwell, opening them up to new depths and dimensions of truth and experience, and people who are living as though the world and human life was rumbling along in the same old way. They may think they're very sophisticated, but in reality they are merely human. The word he actually uses could be translated soulish as opposed to spiritual, meaning someone who is directed, catch these words, and led simply by the ordinary human interior life, the soul, rather than by the fresh gospel-driven wisdom or energy given by God's Spirit. There are two kinds of humans living in this world right now. That's Paul's argument. There are those who are being animated by mere flesh, and there are those who are being animated by God's Spirit, the Holy Spirit. And so true spirituality is clear. is God, the Holy Spirit, dwelling in and among you. So what happens to you when this is true? I want to walk through a few things. I think the first thing that happens is that you paradoxically become more human. The more spiritual spiritual you are, as defined by the Bible, the more human you are. And that might be a paradox to you because what we tend to think is that spirituality is a renouncing of of the body. A spirituality is getting in touch with the things that are sort of of the mind and of the spirit. And so the more spiritual we get, sort of the the less occupied we become with things like our body and the food that we eat. Things like sex. And sort of what God says about sex. We, we, We tend to sort of separate those things. I'm a spiritual person. Those things don't matter to me. And what Paul is arguing in this is that no, and he'll say a lot more about this in chapters 14, 12, 13. He's saying, no, actually, when you receive the Holy Spirit, you become more truly human. Why is that? Because God's Spirit is, God's Spirit was present when he created the world. If you read Genesis 1, it says that God was hovering. God, God the Spirit is a creator, and He's also a recreator. And what He does as He as He as we as He dwells in and among His people is He reshapes us into the people that we were meant to be, but we're twisted and distorted by sin. So we become more and more truly and gloriously human. In fact, the Holy Spirit is what will animate our resurrection bodies. Yes, bodies. That's not a metaphor. It's a reality. When Jesus returns, our bodies will be resurrected. And we will have, we'll be able to pinch ourselves. It won't go like, you know. No, we'll have bodies. Jesus, the resurrected one, has scars to this day. And the Holy Spirit gives us a foretaste, a preview of that resurrection day right now. So that as we walk out of this room, we are in a sense, we are previews of the resurrection. 
Yes, we struggle with sin. Yes, we struggle with doubt. But this is God's gift to you today. That's why you can say no to sin. God the Spirit is in you. And that's why in verse 15 and 16, there's a strange few verses that are hard to quite understand. But I think it's nudging at this reality. Paul is saying in verse 15, the spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. That might have been a quote that was popular in Corinth. And what Paul is doing as he's quoting is he's saying, I affirm that. I affirm that. If you have God, the Holy Spirit then there is a sense in which, just like Adam and Eve before they fell, were called to rule without condemnation, so you will indeed be uh, reinstated into that place. With one condition, and that's the final verse. We have the mind of Christ. So long as we are being shaped into the image of Christ, we rule like Adam and Eve were meant to rule, without condemnation. And this means that the spiritual person will honor God with their bodies and enjoy the creation of God to His glory and and think hard about what what God desires with regard to our bodies. Spirituality is very earthy, according to the Bible. Number two, you will become more humble. Okay, Another sign of true spirituality is not pride, but humility. Paul is so clear in this passage, the Spirit is a gift from God. We receive Him. That word receive is itself telling. In verse 15, the spiritual person judges all things, as we just read. And up above that, we see that the Spirit is itself gifted to us. We have... Now we have received, in verse 12, not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. We understand the the things freely given by Him, by the spirit who is freely given to us. The cross of Christ, we learned last week, is given by grace. The spirit of God who applies that work to us is also given to us by grace. This text tells you that you can't thank your way to God. God comes to us. Over and over again, this means a spiritual person defined by God will be humble, not proud. If you, my wife and I were talking about this the other day, if you feel like you just had a killer home group, like things were just going really well and you were communicating really well and a lot of things were going on and you felt like there was a unity in that group and it was a beautiful thing, let me just say it wasn't because you guys have mastered the art of home group. It's because God, the Holy Spirit, was giving you a gift. Or if you're sitting with the Bible open and you receive comfort from God's words or maybe a fresh insight, it's not because you went to seminary or you listened to some lectures about hermeneutics. It's because God the Spirit is giving you a gift. You become humble. You become humble, more and more humble. In fact, the truest sign of false spirituality is that the more advanced you get, quote-unquote, the more proud you get, the harder you get, the more unreceptive you are to other people, the more you hide. A spirituality defined by God creates a humility 
that is hard to miss. I think spirituality defined by God means you become more comfortable with mystery. The Holy Spirit makes the things of God intelligible, as this text says, beautiful, even acceptable. But it does not mean we have access to all of God's thoughts. That's the Holy Spirit's domain. Amen? Only the Spirit does. So So, so we will often, often, all the time, come to the end of our thinking with God. And be amazed by what Paul calls the depths of God. We will stand at the shoreline of the ocean and just be amazed that it goes on and on and on and on and on with God. Um, Historically, I love thinking about this kind of stuff. There have been three mysteries of the faith. Three things that are affirmed in Scripture that our human minds just have to sort of at one point just say, okay, uncle, (laughs) how that works out is just a mystery. And those have historically been what have been called mysteries of unity. So the Trinity, the Incarnation, and the Atonement. So the Trinity is the mystery that God is both three persons and one God. There's a unity there that is inherently mysterious that we simply cannot get to the bottom of, though we affirm it because Scripture says so. Also, how can Jesus be truly human and truly God? Both and. That's a mystery. Again, it takes us to the edges of our thinking. And then the third one is atonement. How can sinful humanity be in relationship to God who is holy? We know the cross But that will never, ever get old thinking about. These these are the deep things of God. And so let's never tire at marveling at these things and more that the Spirit teaches us to accept and marvel. So I think a spiritual person will, will become humble, will become more human, and I also think will become more and more comfortable with mystery. True spirituality also means you will become more relational with God. This passage tells us that true spirituality is not primarily informational, though information is important, but relational. We are connected to the triune life of God. The depths of God. In other letters, Paul tells us that the Spirit, the same Spirit, helps us cry out to God as our Abba Father. We use the same prayer language as Jesus the Son because the Spirit unites us to Jesus. And we are given, uh, we, are, we are invited into the life of God. That's how John in his writing seems to, seems to describe what it means to be saved. You have eternal life. And when we hear the word eternal, we think immediately chronology. You know, it's eternal all the way down for the rest of time. That's mind-blowing enough. But it was also a quality of life that John was after. John would often say, you have eternal life. He would use that word over and over and over again because what he was trying to say is that when you are saved, when you have relationship with God, you are brought into the life of God. You're united to Jesus. You have the Holy Spirit and you have God as your father. And you are his child. That is amazing. 
So true spirituality is never merely cognitive. But it's mind and soul and body invited into the life of God. It's relationship. Number four, I think true spirituality means you'll read your Bible. (laughs) Okay? Because, and it's not really here in this text, although he does talk often about the things freely given to us, but he explicates this more and more and more in other parts of his writings. Paul says that uh, to be led by the Spirit and to be spiritual, meaning connected to the Holy Spirit, means you're also allowing the Word of God to dwell richly among you. These are two things that are married. They're both and. And so we ask God to help us understand the things of God, His Word. And that same Spirit who breathed out the Word will help you and me understand it. And it will bring home the truths of the Word to our hearts. So, spiritual people read their Bible. And spiritual people, and this is the last thing I'll say, will be communal. We will press into community. It's always important to explore the context of any verse or or any section. And as we know, if you've been walking with us in 1 Corinthians, Paul is in a section where he is urging this church to be one, to be a community. And so what he says about the Holy Spirit is in direct uh, connection with community life. And this means that any vision of spirituality, if it's going to be spirituality according to God, is community shaped. Spirituality rejects individualism. And that's so contrary to how we view spirituality today, right? We view spirituality as an intensely private thing. But according to God, it's not intensely private. It certainly is private in the sense you, you as an individual have a relationship with God. But you are then meant to be in relationship with one another. We have individualized spirituality so much. It's only about self-care. It's only about self-discovery. It's only about self-growth. But the Spirit of God gives us gifts to serve one another. He unites us not just to Jesus, but to His people. And so there's nothing wrong with self-care. In fact, I think it's really important. So long as it doesn't turn you into that dangerous narcissist that we heard about at the beginning of this message. Where all you're thinking about is yourself. No, that's not of God. What's of God is when the Spirit compels you to serve one another and to be in community. So by all means, let's be spiritual, amen? But let's allow God to define that word. Let's let Him define the terms of our spirituality. We are spiritual when we have God, the Holy Spirit. That's God's gift to us. And maybe, I don't know, some of you are feeling really insecure right now. You're wondering, am I am I a person who is spiritual according to, to Paul here? What I'd love to end with is just noticing this detail that Paul is so confident that this is the Corinthian church's inheritance. And let me just remind you of the sorts of things that this Corinthian church was struggling with. We know they were struggling with division. We know they were struggling with all kinds of failures. We know that they were struggling at the table. 
there was cliques and divisiveness and people were getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. Imagine that. There's chaos and confusion in this church. In short, they were a mess. And yet Paul is not saying, okay, now provided, 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 making all these qualifications. Instead, Paul says, this is yours. You have the Spirit. This is your gift. So I wanted to say to you, you may feel distant from God this morning. You may feel unworthy of this gift. But I would encourage you to embrace it. It seems to be Paul's desire for this church. It's my desire for you. Let's all just ask that these realities will become more and more true of our lives. Lord, we do ask this. We ask that you would make us spiritual by your Holy Spirit. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.